Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and over the next half hour, we're going to be tackling three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. And as we do each week, we take our stories from our newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern. And that comes out in a couple different ways, but if you're interested in subscribing, I'm dropping the link to our SMIE consulting.org slash subscribe site where you can add your details and get the newsletter delivered to your inbox on Monday mornings. If you'd like it uh, more in, uh, we, we also have this week's edition for you. We'll be putting the link to that in the chat as well. And for those of you who are listening on the podcast, uh, will uh, those links, particularly the SMIE consulting.org slash subscribe link will take you directly to the archive of all the recent editions where you'll be able to uh, find this week's edition for Wednesday, September 14th, and find the articles that we're referencing in the chat. If you're not uh, watching live or looking at the repeats on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, where we drop the links to each of these stories uh, that relate to our questions that we're covering. So we also have uh, the newsletter available in LinkedIn, if that's where you go for your international ed news. Uh, If you subscribe to uh, the newsletter uh, through LinkedIn, just click on that uh, most recent edition of this week's newsletter, which by coincidence is the 200th edition of our SMIE Consulting e-newsletter. Uh, the, the title of it is All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And the SMIE, in case you're wondering, stands for Social Media and International Education. So those the news stories that we feature on in our newsletter on Mondays, and then we profile three of those stories uh, typically through the, the guise of questions uh, that uh, relate to the news items of the day. And we do that as a way to really talk about uh, some of the key issues that international educators are facing these days. And we do that uh, by going in depth into these, uh, these articles and the questions that they raise about how we do what we do in international education. And the first one is, is, is a topic that has been, been around for quite a while, and, uh, and that's the ever-evolving way uh, students' digital habits are changing. And this is uh, something we've noticed certainly in the age of the internet. Uh, It seems like there's something new almost every year, if not every six months that comes up that is the new shiny thing that that students are drawn to. Uh, Not just uh, college age students, but all all young adults and uh, uh, preteens that might be online and eagerly exploring uh, different ways to communicate with each other and find out information. And that's what we're going to talk about today with this first question. How are students' digital habits changing? Well, we've seen over the last few years, uh, when uh, certainly when I started becoming active on social media and using it professionally uh, in 2005 to 2008, when I was working on a university campus, uh, we started asking the questions of, uh, why aren't students responding to our emails? Why aren't they coming to our on-campus events? And uh, this is for when we, we're talking with our currently enrolled international students. And I, I had this epiphany one day, we need to start asking students where they're spending their time. And we found out at that point in 2005, 2008, uh, they were largely on Facebook. And that platform evolved uh, from a college uh, college to college kind of communication uh, platform, media, social media program uh, platform that we, uh, we uh, students were on first, uh, administrators and uh, everyone else kind of slowly got onto it. And now 
Um, now, our, they're, they're, those kids that first started in on uh, on Facebook in the in the noughties are now uh, uh, upwardly mobile professionals, hopefully with families of their own, and their kids are not on Facebook typically. So those over that generation, there's there's been some change, and uh, that's how we uh, how we kind of mark the time of passing of uh, of, uh, of a, a torch from one generation to the next, and is how these how these uh, habits change. So where they spend their time is obviously the mo one of the most important questions you need to answer for yourself in terms of uh, when you're thinking about going about advertising, going about uh, reaching out to students in particular markets through digital means. Uh, you want to know where they are. Uh, we know we, all, the, all the data for the last few years has pointed increasingly to students are living online. Uh, they're, they're living primarily on their phones, increasingly on their phones almost exclusively on their phones in, uh, other, other than school-related uh, kind of content. So what we need to know is uh, how are their habits changing within them. And we're referencing today an article, uh, it's already in the chat, uh, from ICEF Monitor. It's called Tracking the Gen Z Student Journey in Planning for Higher Education. And there's some great content in here in the article that we'll, uh, we'll be going through today. They come up with three kind of uh, top-level uh, takeaways from this uh, Unibuddy survey. Uh, so Unibuddy, one of the most more popular uh, student ambassador platform uh, communication tools out there. Uh, they have partnerships with, uh, with uh, study portals, with IDP Connect, so that their plug-in is available. Uh, on the, your search profile, on your student, pro on your college profiles on those sites that if you have a student ambassador program, they can be leveraged there. Also independently on your own site, on, on, your, on the different social media channels your student ambassadors are, are, are contributing content to. So uh, Unibuddy is the uh, platform provider for this uh, or the source of this survey, uh, survey document uh, that uh, uh, how the changing student uh, search habits and uh, where they're spending their time and all this is part of this uh, report. Uh, so it's a little bit, one, one of these results is, one of these high-level takeaways is a little bit self-serving but not surprising and frankly we've been seeing it and uh, evolve organically over the last few years and certain uh, organizations, businesses have, have uh, capitalized on that and Unibuddy is certainly one of them. But the three top-level takeaways. New research report underlines that universities and schools need to design their website so that it conveys the right feel to students and prioritizes their top concerns. That's first. It also makes clear that having a student ambassador program is now essential to engaging prospective students. That's two. And third, many students are using TikTok or other social out channels as search engines, not just tuning in for entertainment. So that's a little bit frightening, <laughs> that given, uh, given the uh, wide variety of content available on TikTok and some of it very light and silly and some of it very dark and, and uh, certainly places you want to stay away from. But uh, uh, now uh, that students are using this as, a, as an informational tool, a search engine. So uh, can't say that a whole lot of universities, particularly those in the United States, they might have domestic admissions folks that are, are starting to leverage uh, TikTok as a, as a way to do that. One of the universities I work for, UNLV, has, uh, has done that effectively, created two TikTok accounts for admissions and then the university as a whole over the last year. And those, those seem to be going fairly well, at least generating content and getting out there and that's tagging appropriately and all of that fun stuff. So that, that last one, that third one about uh, 
these new social channels, and TikTok's not new, it's been around for uh, four or five years, but now has a billion users globally. And that's something that certainly universities need to be aware of and, and think about whether this is a platform you want to be engaging in. Uh, so that's, that's, that's one piece. The second is when you, it, t it talks about having a student ambassador program as now an essential. And for those of you who uh, have been following uh, this, this uh, podcast, this live chat for, for, for at least a few months, you've heard me talk about the six P's of strategic international enrollment management. And these six P's are what I consider the, the uh, founding principles of a successful international ed strategy for your institutions. And it go, it's not just about the enrollment piece uh, on the front end, it's about services uh, during the journey as well. So you're accommodating that entire international student experience in how you plan for international students on your campus. And part of that is the services piece and having uh, services that uh, students can take advantage of, that they'll know about, that they are designed for them and can answer their needs specifically. And the colleges that do that best are the ones that if they can leverage those success stories from this international student journey and alumni, successful alumni, in their communication with prospective students are going to do well. And that's what we're calling peer recruitment, right? So that's peers is the sixth of our six P's of uh, strategic international enrollment management principles. So that, uh, that last P is allowing your students allowing your alumni, allowing the parents of your current students to tell your story uh, because they're the better uh, recruiter, best recruiters that you can have, have out there in terms of uh, being able to tell, that, tell their story authentically to future students and that's what any institution would want to have happen uh, to, to allow that, those connections to happen organically, for them to be able to see themselves in a current student or an alum or a parent, see themselves as, in that, as part of your journey, uh, part of your institution's experience. When they can do that, that is what adds all, uh, much more in your favor. Uh, when you can have that paint, painted picture done by a current student or an alumni that helps to shape that prospective student's image of, hey, this could be a place for me because that person looks like me or came from my country or came from my region or is studying what I want to study, that could be me. Uh, and that's what you want to, to encourage and, and engender in all of your prospective students that are serious about your institution when they have choices. And they have lots of choices, not just your institution and, and, your, and your neighbors and, and your community or in your state. They're potentially applying to multiple countries for their university options. So when, I, when it comes to having, uh, having that, your presence in front of them and ha allowing your story to be told, particularly by your current students, that is uh, the adds value to your whole, uh, whole approach to international student recruitment. Now, the, the first piece, I, I saved this part for last in terms of uh, the first takeaway, which was that uh, universities and schools need to design their sites so that it conveys the right feel to students and prioritizes their top concerns. So, how do, what are those top concerns? Uh, lots of student, student satisfaction surveys, uh, lots of prospective student surveys that cover students at different parts of the journey. So, there, uh, there are different takeaways depending on the audience. But quality comes to the top uh, very often, but even more so since the pandemic, we've seen career opportunities and ROI kind of jump to the, surf, jump to the top of the list as priorities. So when you're looking at 
that the uh, what you want your sites to be reflective of is your outcomes, right? Uh, that you provide the quality education, that you provide students with the tools necessary to achieve uh, appropriate employment after they graduate or uh, get admitted to graduate programs uh, if they're starting as undergraduates. So part of that is that feel uh, that you're that you're trying to uh, to establish that meets that student's need. Uh, what, or needs, depending on where they where they are and what uh, what's important to them. But the, those results, uh, making sure that you are demonstrating that from the from the first impression, and your websites are generally the other are other than search sites out there going to be that first direct impression of your institution. And you want to make sure it's easily accessible, which has always been an issue uh, that that institutions do or do not do well is making it accessible from mobile first or uh, design and that it is an also uh, one that speaks to their needs is easy to navigate is reflective of the values of the institution but also what you want prospective students to know about your who you are as an institution or what you are as an institution and what they should expect so how that gets translated is important uh, and there's lots of different ways that we can do that. We've talked about those in the past. But uh, when it talks about feel, the right feel, it's interesting because when, uh, as a U.S. admissions officer, when we're when we're trained in, in, in admissions, uh, we always talk, uh, particularly when we talk about uh, admissions processes, we're trying to find the right. Uh, we know that students are looking for this, the schools that that are the best fit. Uh, we always talk about that language. And that, that's understandable, more so domestically in the United States than perhaps it is internationally, but we always emphasize that. I know when I was working with Education USA and we're talking to advisors about helping students find the right fit, and that concept of fit or feel uh, are ones that might not translate well around the world. So it's, it's up to advisors to make, make the... Uh, help paint that picture of what fit and feel looks like in terms of when they're approaching a university uh, representative at a fair or online or through social media, whatever it might be, uh, they, that they're getting that content that helps answer their questions about whether they're going to feel comfortable there, whether they're going to fit in at your institution and what that looks like. So those things that if, uh, if that's not a, how you're designing your, uh, your websites these days to meet that right, that helping students find if they're going to be a good fit and if they're going to feel comfortable on your campus, then that's a missed opportunity. If that's not the first thing that you're, you're, that's driving your, your uh, design and uh, approach to website content. So those are some gr great information in there uh, in this Unibody survey uh, that uh, ISIF Monitor has looked for uh, or uh, has, uh, has shared the top level highlights of. And it ta it's talking talk about searching for real connection. That's what prospective students are trying to do. And I'm uh, working with an institution now where uh, we don't have a lot of content yet. We're just starting to put an ambassador program together. And I, I, I can't, I can't, can't emphasize enough how important getting that up and running is um, because of uh, how when we don't have a lot of content of our own, existing content of, uh, that we can share that's specific for international students, having some of those current students, if I have to start over again, which I basically am with this institution, uh, starting with uh, content that is student-generated uh, from, from a successful ambassador program. That 
uh, helps lay a stronger foundation for everything else that you're looking to achieve and can develop uh, through their interactions on social, through the content that they're generating, capturing some of that, repurposing that for, uh, for institution-wide social uh, interviews that you're going to do that are going to be related to those uh, student ambassadors. All of these are pieces of the puzzle that uh, if you have them fit in well together and you're a well-oiled machine, the sky's the limit for you. But if you're just starting out, uh, certainly that ambassador piece is one that I would uh, strongly focus on in terms of content for, from your current international students. So that's uh, topic number one today. So we uh, uh, really find this kind of a topic one we could talk all day and night about. And if actually next week at the Education USA Regional Forum for Europe and Eurasia, uh, I'm going to be presenting with uh, three advisors from, from uh, Europe, from Poland, um, from Georgia, and from Azerbaijan. And we're going to be talking about beyond webinars, how, how, you, how, how you can be connecting with uh, students uh, successfully. Uh, in uh, throughout the admission cycle. So uh, this is a topic that's very uh, always top of my, my, my mind and I'm happy that I'll be presenting that at the conference uh, in Belgrade, Serbia next week. So that will be where I'll be doing my live from next week. So hopefully you can uh, catch that uh, when we come to you live uh, from the EdUSA Regional Forum. Uh, with the time difference, it'll be uh, in the uh, early evening hours uh, when I'd be connecting with you. So we'll see what uh, that looks like in terms of uh, the, the conference. It's the last night of a conference, actually. So we'll see what that looks like in terms of uh, what probably be my summation on what happens at the forum. So uh, next up is uh, the issue of moral responsibility uh, for international students. Uh, this is a, sometimes a tricky topic to talk about with, uh, with, uh, within international audiences, but when, when we talk about universities, um, I went to university uh, in the mid to late 80s uh, at a time when um, divestment from uh, companies that were doing business in, uh, that we were doing, yeah, companies that were doing business in South Africa before uh, apartheid. Uh, had been uh, lifted and uh, and before certainly pre Nelson Mandela's election as president. So that was one of the hot issues on campus uh, is divestment from uh, companies uh, that were doing business in South Africa, that the universities should not be investing in companies that are doing business in South Africa, that type of thing. So uh, that was a, a huge topic of the, in my uh, uh, freshman, sophomore year at university. And that was something that uh, you see pop up every now and again. Certainly in recent years, you've seen uh, some some uh, students uh, student groups uh, protesting or advocating for their board of directors to divest from uh, from oil companies uh, and oil and gas companies that uh, are uh, in their in their views destroying the environment. Uh, that uh, those those are common things on college campuses where freedom of expression still exists to a large extent, and this is what um, uh, one of the issues we're talking about today is, is related to moral responsibility when it comes to uh, in international uh, events. Uh, we saw some of that happen post uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine in in late February, early March. There was a disconnecting of uh, relationships with institutions in Russia, uh, showing increased levels of support for Ukrainian institutions, and certainly Ukrainians uh, that were in the United States uh, received temporary protected status uh, and benefits from the from the U.S. government. 
but uh, universities that those are kind of the easy ones, uh, easy decisions to make. So some some are still uh, hanging on to ties uh, with Russian institutions and certainly not putting them front and center on their websites. Uh, but certainly those are some of the moral questions that come up uh, that are international related, that impact uh, international events, impacting what, what institutions can and should do. Uh, the first article that I've uh, uh, put up in the chat is one related to Carnegie Mellon. Uh, they have had and had the only uh, master's level degree program offered in person in Africa uh, for many years now. Uh, started, I think, in 2010 or 11. Uh, but they have uh, been funding uh, this uh, graduate level program uh, in, in, in engineering, computer science, uh, that uh, they're, they're, they are, and like I said, they are the only U.S. college or university that has graduate level programs offered in a physical location in Africa. And their uh, program in Rwanda has been there since 2011 through uh, their um, College of Engineering uh, Carnegie Mellon. Uh, the, uh, they had been funded primarily by the Rwandan government in the early days. Uh, 175, uh, well, no, there's, there was 70, I think initially $75 million, uh, $100 million uh, for, for various monies over the year, of almost $100 million from uh, the, from the government of Rwanda that uh, allowed them to uh, f build the facilities and the building and the now campus that they have there. The scholarship program, there's been a new uh, $275 million uh, investment in the institution on behalf of uh, the Rwandan government and the MasterCard Foundation moving forward uh, so that uh, to allow the campus to operate uh, what they call in, per in, perpetuity, in perpetuity. Uh, with uh, over 300 scholarships aimed to growing the university's annual enrollment by more than a third. So there's been real commitments uh, by the institution, uh, particularly the engineering college, uh, to be in Rwanda offering these degrees. And uh, they have it is certainly a high-profile uh, institution uh, with, uh, and the first uh, U.S. campus to do so. So to be offering degrees, graduate degrees, fully in, uh, in Rwanda. So uh, that the questions have come uh, with some of the connections to the government. And the higher, Inside Higher Ed article uh, talks about how uh, what this, and in my, uh, my, my social media post on this this week, I asked, I asked if this was uh, an example of education washing. Uh, we've heard of uh, money laundering, uh, where uh, criminal enterprises find legitimate businesses to launder their money and to uh, clean their money. But there's also reputation laundering. Uh, we've uh, found, and through what we call in the in the UK, uh, you've had, or throughout European fo uh, football or soccer, you've had uh, uh, investment funds of na of nations, particularly Middle Eastern nations, uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, Qatar, UAE, that have bought controlling interests in s s major uh, soccer clubs in, in England, in uh, France, uh, two, two in England, one in France that have been purchased recently uh, by, in the last 10 years at least, uh, by uh, sovereign wealth funds from, from these Middle Eastern countries. And but the one in particular that most has uh, raised the most uh, eyebrows, uh, we had um, 
the Qatar Foundation uh, in well, a few years ago, in, uh, when they purchased, or Qatar bought um, bought uh, controlling stake in Paris Saint Germain, uh, one, top, one of the top clubs in France. And this was at a time when the, the Qatar had gotten the World Cup bid, and there was promotional efforts by uh, by by the Qatari government to promote their image, even though there were severe human rights abuses taking place and uh, awful working conditions from from the uh, South Asian uh, citizens that had moved to uh, to that country to build the stadiums and the infrastructure for the World Cup that's taking place in November, December this year. So uh, that had that's happened previously. You've had. Uh, most recently in the UK, we ha you had the Sovereign Wealth Fund managed by Mohammed bin Sal Salman uh, from Saudi Arabia that uh, his, his cronies were indicted uh, for uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi at the uh, uh, Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul. Uh, on his orders, it is, it is alleged, and uh, that's certainly what uh, certainly the intelligence agencies in the U.S. Uh, seem to have uh, made those accusations and connected the dots to uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. But he is the owner of, the, of this wealth fund, or is on the board of this wealth fund. So his wealth fund bought a soccer club, Newcastle United. So that's uh, potentially attempts to uh, wash his image, uh, and the country of Saudi Arabia's image, with. Uh, uh, fans of that soccer club in England. Uh, you also now have, um, with this particular case, you have the Rwandan government having been, uh, that, that's what they call sports washing with those soccer clubs, but you now have the Rwandan government over the last 10 years uh, being the primary benefactor of this uh, campus uh, that CMU has established in Rwanda. Uh, you have uh, Funding that's now being extended. Uh, the president, Paul Kagame uh, of Rwanda, uh, who has been accused of a litany of human rights abuses, according to the Inside Higher article related to uh, the genocide that happened in Rwanda uh, in the early 90s uh, and early 2000s, or 90s and early 2000s. So this is uh, this is part of what the challenge is here: is are these is is this reputation washing or our uh, education washing, I should say, uh, by what the R Rwandan government's trying to do with uh, helping support this uh, American institution in in their country deliver top-level graduate edu engineering education. So that's that's the question of whether that is whether that makes up, makes makes uh, raise, rises to the level of something that a university should strongly be considering whether or not that's that's the right move or whether that association is uh, the best uh, in for the, in the best interests of the university and its image. So that's a much bigger question than uh, strictly international admissions folks uh, need to get involved in, but certainly one to be aware of. But when we talk about this question of moral responsibility internationally. The divestment pieces are, are certainly there. We've uh, we've talked about the the, uh, the various ways that um, those with less than perfect reputations look to rehabilitate their images through uh, sizable donations and government uh, government uh, pay handouts, that type of thing, or purchasing <laughs> purchasing uh, sporting teams. Uh, you also have, uh, we've seen recently in the last few months, uh, calls for uh, universities to divest from companies that are helping China in known or unknown ways related to uh, the uh, Uyghur genocide that's going on in northwest uh, uh, northwest China, uh, that population in Shenzhen province. 
So we, uh, that, that's an, there's another piece, an article from Inside Higher Ed as well that has uh, the calls on boards to divest from Uyghur genocide. So effectively asking students to push for, for university boards to divest from Chinese companies complicit in genocide against Uyghurs. So that's the, uh, one of the, these other pushes. So are there, uh, are there and the person who wrote this article in Inside Higher Ed is a former board chairman of a major university and a former CEO of a public company and not-for-profit not organization. So he's, he's encouraging U.S. institutions to divest from these companies so that our that factories in across China are using forced labor from uh, Uyghur, from from um, Xinjiang province from these, this Uyghur population, uh, and that's uh, that it's tainting the global supply chain in so doing. So it's uh, a lot of well-known brands uh, from China that are part of that scheme. There may be U.S. companies that are connected with it uh, in terms of distribution of those products. So that's certainly something uh, for that uh, institutions certainly need to be paying attention to. Now, last question of the day is a, is a quick one, but it's one that uh, we won't have a lot of time to go into, but it's, it's clear in terms of how two countries are responding to this question. And the question is, uh, how should, uh, univer how should uh, governments uh, how, and how should countries react to labor market challenges? We've had this in the United States. We have had um, STEM skills shortage uh, in terms of graduate, uh, graduating domestic students with abilities in these high levels in these STEM fields to then take jobs, higher paying jobs, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to develop those, those uh, technologies uh, in the STEM fields uh, for our country and for businesses in the United States. Uh, that's been a, a known problem for years. Uh, we have in 2008, uh, we had uh, in uh, during President Bush's uh, administration, uh, Bush two, uh, we had uh, the government authorized uh, the extra two years of work permission, the STEM OPT law that we know, or regulation that we know now exists, that does allow for extra work time for those students uh, beyond the, the the one year that everybody gets. So that was an, uh, addressed regulatorily uh, a while ago. And we, uh, we, but we still have these gaps. Uh, not enough uh, uh, students are filling these uh, jobs. Uh, certainly, not enough domestic students. So a lot of international students are uh, getting these these uh, positions initially. So how how we, we respond is very slowly. We don't do anything quickly in the United States. The two articles I've just posted are one related uh, to Australia. They have had a significant. Uh, work uh, uh, job um, unfilled vacancies in uh, that's what vacancies are they're unfilled well, they have vacancies in a lot of a uh, lot of different fields and as a result the that they can't fill domestically and as a result the Australian government has made the decision to extend post-study work rights for these in-demand fields adding an extra two years onto their work permission uh, so instead of just two years they'll now get four years uh, for these in-demand fields so fairly significant and something that if that ever happened in the United States uh, to simply we've got uh, these fields uh, or these uh, jobs openings that are 
systemic across the country we can't fill. Uh, we have students that are graduating soon that, hey, if we give them an extra two years to move from one to three years or two to four years as they're doing in Australia, that means that, oh my goodness, that's a lot, that's, that's a lot more inviting. Uh, and it's a smart move on the part of the Australian government to rebound from the losses that they saw during the pandemic. And we've seen some institutions that have been waiting for this floodgates to open since December when the, the country began to reopen to internationals uh, that simply haven't materialized and most uh, for one in one state Victoria state in in uh, Australia uh, over a hundred thousand of the two hundred over the over a hundred thousand students are still only a hundred thousand students are still in the country but there are three hundred thousand plus that are taking uh, that are enrolled students, but they've two, over 200,000 are staying home uh, doing their courses remotely still. So they're not potentially going to be able to take advantage of these extra, uh, extra benefits here. So we'll see what happens, but they're, they're, they're addressing it right away. Uh, well, we, uh, certainly lightning speed compared to what we would expect in the U.S. Uh, Canada is also looking at uh, changing some of the, their, their immigration regulations, which are already very generous towards international students and work and, and potential residency afterwards. There's talk about how, how can, ca uh, the article here is how can Canada get the international students it needs for the jobs it has. Uh, and a report calls for a course correction that has more targeted policies that allow international students with the right skill sets to get uh, a successful integration in the Canadian society. That's the priority in Canada. We don't have that priority in the United States. So it's an interesting dilemma that we face uh, in terms of changing policy, uh, changing direction, and uh, it seems that Canada, Australia, UK previously have made those course corrections. Uh, necessary uh, on, uh, in very short order. Uh, we're just not able to do that in the United States for a variety of reasons. But uh, certainly, uh, if we were able to do that as quickly and efficiently as, as Canada and uh, Australia have done, uh, we would be in an even more advantageous uh, position uh, internationally in terms of student recruitment. But enough, for the, enough, for the, enough to talk about that for, for years on end, but uh, enough for this week. Uh, we do appreciate you being a part of the conversation today, and we look forward to chatting with you at upcoming uh, conferences. Uh, for those that will be in Serbia, looking forward to connecting with you next week at the EdUSA Regional Forum. Uh, and that's where we'll be coming to you live uh, next Wednesday, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, which will be about 7 p.m. Uh, Central European time, where I'll be presenting to you from. So look forward to chatting next week live from Serbia. Cheers, and have a great weekend.